Hi, and welcome to Kiskadi, where we explore women identified, gender nonconforming, and gender expensive communities across the Americas, and how we are creating a post pandemic future grounded in justice, abundance, and hope, and how you can be part of it. I am Bia Vieira, inviting you to join us in this journey and in action. Hi and welcome everyone. You're in for a real treat today. I am having a conversation with the really amazing, brilliant, powerful Monica Ramirez, who is the founder and president of Justice for Migrant Women. She's also a co-founder of the Latinx House Poderistas, which at one point was She Se Puede, and the Alianza Nacional de Campesinas. So welcome, Monica. Thank you so much for having this conversation as part of the Kiskadi podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And I want to share that we have worked together on two projects, one slightly and one more of a partnership uh, with Poderistas and Masks for Migrants, the Mask for Migrants campaign. But before we get there, I really would like you to share, if you can, just your journey to justice for migrants. How did you get there? What in your life journey brought you to start this organization and do all the powerful work that you're doing? Yeah, well, you know, um, I come from a migrant farm worker family. I'm sitting in Fremont, Ohio, which is the small rural community where my parents settled out of the migrant stream. Actually, my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family arrived in this little town um, for the purposes of working in agriculture. And eventually they found their way out of agriculture. So I'm the first generation in my family that did not have to migrate for the purposes of work, which if you know at all about agriculture, that's actually a huge accomplishment. It's very difficult to break the migrant cycle. And so I was the first in my family that got to experience living in a place year round. And when I was growing up, because myself and my two siblings, we were not um, in the same position as, as my parents had been, or even you know some of my cousins, um, we never had to work in the fields. It was really important to my parents to make sure that we understood that we came from this migrant farm worker background, you know, what the what it was like to work in the field. And, you know, I think in their own way, they were trying to educate us about our privilege and to make sure that we understood that we had a, a job to do and that we needed to figure out how to give back. And so from the time I was a little kid, my dad would talk to us about working in the fields and, you know, migrating around the country and what the housing was like and, and the poor working conditions. Um, and that so that was always very much part of my um, my reality. And when I got a little bigger and uh, was a teenager, that sort of was when I, I guess, became an activist. I never thought I was an activist. I thought I was just doing stuff in the community, but people, that's what people decided to call me. Um, because my parents had educated us about farm workers, I recognized when injustices were happening in my community against farm workers and started writing for a newspaper. And, and you know, eventually that led to me wanting to become an attorney. And then as an attorney, um, creating a project for migrant women in Florida, which I eventually scaled to what it is today, um, is justice for migrant women. So, you know, I feel like my work is is in my blood. It's in my it's it's the roots, you know, for me and my family in this country and this community. And um, I just feel really fortunate that I had parents who understood that part of their work as parents was to make sure that 
that we didn't forget where we came from and that we also didn't get to just sort of live this life that was free of some of the hardships that they experienced and that we actually needed to know about it and try to do something to make things better. Wow. How did they make sure, like what kinds of stories do they tell you? What kinds of kind of family narratives were part of your family to make sure that that happened? You know, I actually think that probably one of the most memorable experiences from my childhood was my father took our family to Mississippi. Um, My father started working in the fields when he was eight years old, picking cotton. Um, He's one of 10 children and um, his older siblings had been working in the fields for years. Um, And at five, he wanted to start working in the fields. My grandparents wouldn't let him. So when he was eight, it's when he started. And when we were little kids, he took us back to what used to be a plantation. Um, the, the place where he worked, it was a plantation. And eventually, you know, the farmers um, opened up the land to sharecroppers and migrant workers. And um, he worked for a family, uh, a farmer named Gaden Smith. And so I think I was probably, you know, eight or nine years old uh, when he took us there. And we got to see the shack, the literal one room shack, where he and his uh, nine siblings and my grandparents lived. Um, that didn't have running water inside. Um, we got to go to the plantation where the family lived and we met with, with that family, Gaden Smith and his wife. Um, it was very much like an old Southern plantation with like a, a plantation store where they would take credit out, you know, during the winter when they didn't have as much work. And, you know, and that really left an impression on me. My father took us to the cotton fields where he had worked and told us stories about, you know, sometimes they were so tired that they would work all day and then they would sleep on the bags. They would put the the cotton in these big bags and then they would put those on, on trucks. And he said sometimes they were so tired that they would just sleep, you know, in the fields on those bags. And so like seeing it in person, even as a little girl, it just really left an impression on me. And you know, my father did not have formal education until he was 14, um, because during the time when he was growing up, it was the segregated South, and there really wasn't a school for Latino children. So there was a school for white children and a school for black children, but for kids like my uh, my father and his siblings, there really wasn't a school for them. And so they worked in the fields, you know, from the time they were little until they they grew up. And so my older aunts and uncles never went to school. But when my dad was 14, because Gaden had taken an interest in him and I guess saw promise in him, Gaden taught my dad how to read and write. So he taught him his alphabet and he taught him how to read and write. And then he paid for him to go to the private school. Um, so when he started school, he failed his first year because he'd never had any formal education before that. And then afterwards he was able to graduate from high school. And that's actually how our family got out of the migrant cycle because when they migrated to Ohio to work in the fields, because my father had actually just graduated from high school, he was able to get a job at a local factory. And, you know, so these are the stories I was told growing up, you know, like what it meant to be a child worker, what it meant to experience racism. My dad talks a lot about how, um, while living in the South at the time, they couldn't speak English. You know, my, my grandparents were monolingual Spanish speakers. And so my father and his siblings spoke Spanish and, and really that was their dominant language. And so they couldn't communicate with the African-American farm workers who were working alongside them. And my dad always said, but, you know, the other farm workers, 
they didn't understand each other, but they were gracious and supportive of each other, you know, and that left an impression on him because when he grew up, he realized that they had been treated so badly. They're experiencing violence and discrimination. So, you know, I like all of those stories, even though I was a little kid, like those were foundational and really kind of informed my understanding of civil rights and the civil rights movement, like my understanding of economic justice, like, and then, you know, fast forward to where I am now in my career and even just in my life. And I understand that many of those conditions that my dad and my mom experienced, my mom experienced it differently because she, she predominantly, they worked in the fields up north. So in Ohio and Michigan and other places, they both worked in the fields. They both understood that reality. And what I know today is that many of the things that they've talked to me about are things that still haven't changed, right? Farm workers still right. don't have rights. Farm workers are still being exploited and discriminated against. And so, you know, those early teachings are like a constant reminder of what is to be done and also the possibility that there, that there can be change and that people who come from communities like ours can be the drivers of that change. Wow. And what what were stories that your mom told you? How were they different? My mom's story was different um, for lots of reasons. Um, One, my mom wasn't raised by her grandparents. Uh, She wasn't raised by her her parents. And because she was raised by her grandparents, um, she like her her aunts and uncles were also caretakers and you know they were kind of like the babies of the family because they were being raised by their aunts and uncles and by my my great grandparents and so um by the time my my mom and her sisters were born they were still going to the fields like they would you know pick cherries and, and other crops um but it was a much different experience than my dad's because whatever they earned it was like supplemental like it was helpful Whereas when my dad was working, like that was necessary for the family to, to live. You know, like if, my mom always says mm-hmm. that they, they ate more cherries and they actually um, contributed to the basket that was going to be weighed for um, for pay, you know. Um, and so I think for my mom, it was like a much lighter load. But uh, but the but the thing that that I think I appreciate the most about my mom's experience is that my great grandfather became a trusted worker um, with a local farmer, and the local mm-hmm. farmer gave my my great grandfather the opportunity to stay in farm worker housing in Ohio year round to help maintain the farm in the winter. And so that's how they were able to break the migrant cycle, so they they weren't traveling back and forth from Texas to Ohio anymore. And because of that, um, they were sort of more of a, a constant presence in this area. And so my great-grandparents were thought of as um, leaders in the community because they, they'd stayed, they were, they were connected with people. And so this understanding of like what it meant to actually know someone when you were not local and like when you only came like for a couple of months each year, like I understood that that really meant a lot. And, and like having a community like my, my great-grandparents and my older aunts and uncles um, that were actually here um, and and kind of had a familiarity with other people in the community, that was very helpful to other farm workers that were coming here because most people, you know, when you're a migrating farm worker, I think one of the things that makes them most vulnerable is that they're not connected in the community. And so um, I just remember my mom was talking about how 
they always had all of these visitors every summer. And it was because when farm workers arrived in town, they would go and they would see my great grandparents so they could, you know, find out like, was there something they needed to know? You know, was there some, you know, was there work in a different place, et cetera. And, and when I was born, my great grandparents, they, you know, I'm very, very fortunate. I got to know my great grandparents. They were still alive. And I remember experiencing that like every summer farm workers would come into our community starting in June. And it was like this huge, like, party for like three months because people were always coming over to my great grandparents and, you know, to find out where jobs were, to share information. And, you know, workers would bring like buckets of cucumbers and buckets of tomatoes because they were the people that people looked to, you know, to provide information, to share resources, to help get them connected. And, and I sort of feel like maybe it was like the merger of both of those experiences that actually kind of helped create the organizer that I am, you know, because I learned sort of like the the importance of being uh, the resource sharer and the um, people gatherer, you know, the, the person that helps create community. I learned that from my mom and my mom's side, you know, and I learned from my dad's side, like what the range of issues were that people were confronting. And so I feel like, you know, I talk about my parents all the time because they're incredible and I'm so fortunate that they're my parents and they raised me the way they did. Um, but I really think it's truly like the combination of their experiences that, that made me, um, I think, able to, to even have the career and to do the work that I do today. Oh, thanks for sharing that. I think that from the stories that there are a couple of things that really talks about justice of lack or lack of justice in terms of, you know, that your father had this opportunity to go to school because this man decided, uh, you know, for some reason that he was, had promise and it was deserving as opposed to everybody else, right? So this kind of lack of systemic way of being able to access education, access, many different things. I think that that really um, is so striking about also the story about your great grandparents as well, right? That yes. a random act can change generations. Um, yeah, I say that actually, I say that often. I say, you know, there are two farmers who changed our lives forever. And, you know, I my story is very unique in that, like, I can tell the story literally of going from the fields to Harvard Square. That is my story. And that story is only possible because these two farmers took a shot on, on you know, my grandparents and my great-grandparents. And it literally changed everything um, for all of us, you know, my, my parents included, you know, and, uh, you know, my son who who will never know what that work is like because his life is so different. But, you know, it's like my parents, it's my responsibility to make sure that there's an understanding. You know, I think the other thing that is important to share is that, and what I appreciate so much about my parents is that they always understood, like we've been given opportunities, but we have to do something with those opportunities that are not only to our benefit, you know? And so after my dad went to, so what actually ended up happening, Gaden Smith worked out a deal with the school. So my dad only went to school a couple of days a week so that he could continue to work on the farm with my grandparents. So he was like a part-time student um, and still was able to graduate. But my father then got a job, another job uh, as a bag boy at the Piggly Wiggly 
so that he could use the money from his Piggly Wiggly job to pay for his younger siblings to go to school. Wow. Right. So even at that age, he got like, okay, like I had this chance and now I'm going to give this chance, you know, to, to, to my brothers and sisters. And um, I think that's a very special trait. Um, and it, and it's certainly something that I think many of us can learn from. Um, and I hope that like, that's the way that we'll, our communities will get stronger as we continue to see, like with every opportunity, there is a responsibility and it's our job to determine how we're going to use the opportunities that we're given to help more people. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful story. So it makes sense then uh, that you created not only the organization that you created, but also the project of masks for migrants. So really that idea of giving back and the idea of how communities have a sense of belonging while they are going through a lot of transition and migration, because one of the other important thing that comes through your stories is really understanding that migrants are in a constant, constant um, place of transitioning and how hard that is for families, for individuals to find belonging and to find, you know, to be rooted. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the project Mask, Mask for Migrants, the campaign, um, and where is it now and how can folks still participate? Yeah, so the Mass Migrants Project is a project that we co-created with um, an entity called Mercado Global, which works with uh, entrepreneurs in Guatemala, female entrepreneurs in Guatemala. And uh, we're also working with This Is About Humanity, which is an organization that works alongside the U.S.-Mexico border and the Hispanic Heritage Foundation. The project actually is kind of an offshoot of another project that we created, which is called the Mass for Farmworkers Project. And both of them started during the COVID pandemic. Um, and the reason that we started them was because we understood that farm workers and migrant women were probably not likely to receive the, you know, the masks they needed during the pandemic. And we were all told that like, if you want to have a chance of being safe during this pandemic, it's really important that we wear masks. So um, with the Masks for Migrants project, which thankfully you all have supported and have helped to grow, um, I thought that the project was important for us to do not only because we wanted to provide masks to the migrant women and children who are alongside the border, but also really understanding how migration happens and why many migrant women leave or are forced out of their countries. Um, for many of them, there are few economic opportunities. And so the work that Mercado Global was doing to create jobs and to give these female entrepreneurs the, the chance to stay in their home country and their communities and work, that was really compelling for me. And the thought that they would make these masks to basically provide them to keep their neighbors safe, people who were traveling from their country and from their towns safe, like that to me was really powerful and beautiful. And so it was with that idea that we, we designed the project and built it. Um, I think at this point we've been able to uh, raise enough resources to give out 120,000 masks, which is more than we thought we would be able to give out. We've actually almost doubled what we thought we would give out at the beginning when we created the project. Our goal initially was, you know, 75,000 masks. Uh, I think we will uh, surpass the 150,000 mask mark pretty soon. 
Um, the masks are for adults and for children, and they basically have been given out at the shelters in the tent cities along the border. Mm-hmm. And um, the protection is important, but the joy that people feel when they receive them, I mean, that there's like no price tag that you can put on that. And so being able to watch the videos from when people are receiving the masks or hearing about their reactions, to me, that has been so special because it, it is so meaningful to them to know that people from their country or from their town took the effort, took the time and like with love created these masks to protect them. That's been, it's been incredible to, to witness that. Um, you know, we're continuing to build. I mean, we all know that unfortunately the COVID pandemic is not over. We don't know how long it will last. We know that people who are in um, these migrant shelters are very vulnerable to the illness given the conditions in those shelters. So we'll continue to build the project as long as we can and to um, give masks out. Uh, we've given masks out um, on the US-Mexico border, um, like in the Tijuana area, but we've also supplied masks in other places. I and mean, we're actually getting requests from the interior of the United States for migrants who are moving to different parts of the country. But so far they've been mainly um, provided to migrant shelters in, in Texas um, on the Texas uh, uh, Mexico border, and then in the in Tijuana, um, San Diego area, and you know, I think that the one of the things that's important about this project, and and also all the work that we do, is that sometimes people think that we can only make change or engage in change making if it's going to be like some huge campaign or some monumental act. And I think that what's important about this is making these masks it might seem like a very small act, but what the masks are doing is it's providing a a life-saving tool to families who really need it. And it's sending a message of of love, hope, and belonging and of Mm -hmm. of mutual care. And, And we can't underestimate the importance of that. And so I feel like people who are trying to figure out how do we get engaged or what do we do or how do we really make a difference? Like none of us should discount these small projects together make a big impact. And so I hope that one of the learnings from the Mass for Migrants project for people who learn about it is that not only do we provide the PPE and you know, send these messages of love, but it was also a demonstration of a pretty um, straightforward project that anyone could do, you know, and anyone could start it. And um, so I'm looking forward to seeing where the project oh, goes next. Thank you for sharing that. And I also know that you know, in terms of response to COVID, that you also started access to mental health um, treatment and mental health therapy. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as part of also as in response to COVID to migrant communities? Yeah, so we launched this project called Healing Voices. And um, the reason that we created the project was because at the start of the pandemic, we started having town hall meetings with different uh, farm worker community members around the country. And we were, we were holding the town halls because we wanted to understand what their needs were. Um, and they changed throughout the pandemic. Um, some, for some, it was food. And, and for others, it was you know diapers and, and formula and things of that nature. But one thing that remained present in all of the conversations was that people kept talking about the stress they're experiencing, depression, fear, anxiety. And so as we continue to hear those you know, comments from people, we kept thinking like, yes, we can try to, we can have a mutual aid fund. We can get people money. We can get people products. You know, we can create masks. But what people really are calling for is some relief when it comes to their mental health, some tools to help manage this moment. 
And so Healing Voices is uh, right now, it's in, it's a virtual uh, therapy project that we co-created with the Eva Longoria Foundation, the Latinx Therapy Network, and with the National Migrant and Seasonal Head Start Association. And we're piloting the project in California and in Florida. And um, we've been able to uh, create an advisory board that is made of folks who come from farm worker families who were farm workers themselves, and also people who work closely with the farm worker community so they could advise us on the build of the project. Uh, we've created a specialized curriculum that goes along with the project, thanks to the help of two therapists. And um, the, there's actually two curriculums. There's a, a clinical uh, curriculum that is being administered by trained therapists, and then there's a non-clinical um, curriculum. The non-clinical curriculum is really important because therapists are licensed by state and because farm workers migrate from state to state, we, we needed to have a non-clinical model so that if farm workers were migrating, that people could conduct the groups without concern about the, the licensure issues. Um, and really our long-term goal for this project, there's two. One is that we will eventually scale it to reach farm workers all over the country. And through this pilot that we are evaluating, that we will have some important learning so that we can figure out how to improve the project and make sure that it is helpful and that the practices people are learning are practices that they can take with them into the future. But the other goal is we we believe that mental health care uh, is an occupational health and safety issue Absolutely. for all workers, not just for farm workers and low paid workers. Um, the strain that people are experiencing during COVID um, is unique because of COVID but workers experience stress and strain all of the time, even before COVID. Um, and so for some workers, it's even more acute. And we believe that the federal government needs to create a health and safety worker standard through OSHA that will provide workers with mental health care resources and benefits in the same way that we take care of people's physical health at work. And I believe that if we are successful in getting the federal government to adopt a standard like this, I believe that we will actually be able to address some other really important social ills. Like imagine, you know, if someone is mistreated at work and um, then they have to go home to their family after they've had a terrible day at work where they're being mistreated, like what are, what is the potential fallout that can happen in a home? Um, you know, we see an increasing number of, of cases in which um, workers are going into their places of employment and um, there's gun violence that's happening. We see all these things are playing out in the news. And I think if we can get people mental health care and make people understand that it is just as important as physical health care and that we need to extend safety measures in the workplace on that issue, I think that we could potentially make some huge shifts on other issues too. So that's where we're starting. I think it's a really exciting and important project. And we certainly have a lot to learn. I and mean, this is only the beginning, but um, I'm really proud that we've been able to take this first step, and I'm looking forward to watching the project continue to grow. Oh, that's amazing, and we are as well. Um, where in California and where in Florida are you piloting? So they're virtual groups. So right now we actually have folks who are in different parts of the state, uh, in both states. Um, yeah. That's the nice thing about the virtual. Um, we do hope that at some point we'll be able to have in-person groups, which will be smaller, you know, groups in, in particular communities. But right now we have people who are participating, um, you know, in different rural communities throughout California, like in the Fresno area. Uh, we have some folks who are down in Southern California. Um, in Florida, we have folks that are participating that are around the 
uh, the Tampa area, the Immokalee area, so different areas. Um, and, and we've been getting requests from different parts of the country for farm workers who want to see the project in their area. So that also makes us really happy. The response has been overwhelming. People are, are excited to see what's going to happen. People have contacted us also from other industries because we want to figure out how do we scale this to other industries, the model. And so we've had worker centers contact us. I think there's a, a lot of a lot of promise with the project. But like I said, we're in the early stages. We're, we're, we're still learning. So we'll see what happens. Oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank it's you. Fantastic. I want to ask you a, a couple of questions about the work of narrative change, because I know you've been very involved. You wrote, you authored Dear Sister's Letter to Farm Workers. You are co-founder of Poderistas and Latinx House. And all of these three efforts are really important in terms of culture change, narrative change, particularly for women of color, but especially Latinx women. So I wanted to ask you if you could share a little bit about whatever you want, the Dear Sisters letter, but also Poderistas and uh, Latinx House. Yeah, so, you know, all of them are uh, different initiatives and in that, um, you know, Latinx House is very focused on uplifting the Latinx community across all mediums. So entertainment, you know, film and movies, but also looking at how the media is portraying the Latinx community. Um, you know, we've called out the fact that book publishers are not publishing enough of our books. And we've also um, been focusing on how museums are representing us and figuring out how we can create and support artists um, who are creating art that is reflective of our community, because there's a different story that needs to be told about our community. And we need to be the ones who are telling our own stories. So the Latinx House is actually going to be um, creating more original content and we're working on our first short film right now. Um, yeah, it's good. We're excited about it. And Poderistas is a- Can you share anything about the first short film? It's an animated short. It is uh -huh. so, so good, but I'm super, I'm super biased, you know? Um, but it's a story of equality and I think you're gonna love it. Um, it's coming soon. Uh, we actually, we'd hope to release it this year. I think it's actually probably gonna be released um, next in March of 22. Uh, but it's a story, it's, an, it's a story of empowerment and equality. And um, it is based on a nursery rhyme that many folks from Latin America will probably recognize. So that's all I'm gonna say now, but it's coming soon. Um, <laughs> it's good. Yeah. And, um, and that is, that was really the, the brainchild of Olga Segura, who's one of the co-founders of the Latinx house. Um, and I'm, I'm super fortunate to be, I helped write the script and have been working with her on that, on that project. So it's, I, I'm not a filmmaker, so that's a whole new area for me. Um, Bodrisas is a, a group that was co-founded by Olga and myself. Um, and Alex Martinez Kondrecki, who's the other co-founder of the Latinx House, but we actually joined up. There were a total of 10 founders of Poderistas, all uh, Latina leaders um, in different areas, in different work. Some of you probably know, maybe all of them, but um, Eva Longoria and America Ferreira are two of the co-founders who lots of folks know and admire. Um, but we came together because we basically said, you know, Latinas in this country are have been for too long an afterthought. Um, politicians don't think about us until the very last minute if they think about us at all. You know, we have the largest wage gap. We have the largest wealth gap. Like there's so many ways in which Latinas are being left behind. But we all know 
that we are the centers of our families. We are the center of our community. We are the center of our workplaces. We know that. We are the organizers in our community. And we basically said, well, we're not going to wait for people to build something for us. We know what we need. And so we're just going to build it. And so it was really with that idea that we set out to create what was when we launched She Se Puede and Now Poderistas. And um, it's been an incredible journey because it launched at the end of August 2020. Um, quickly, people started to sign on. And now I think we have something like 100 and I don't even know how many thousand followers on Instagram, but the, the social media footprint is quite extensive. I think it's now over 200,000 followers across platforms. And um, But what we were hearing from Latinas was, we need this. We want this. Like We've been yearning for this. And so uh, we were able to develop a power squad. So there are over a thousand Latinas who are part of a power squad. They're going through this leadership training program. We're also Fantastic. talking about the stories of Latinas, like who are we and and why don't people understand our power? And so we, we spend a lot of time lifting each other up, lifting up other Latinas across industries and sectors and really figuring out like how do we harness the collective power to make a much broader impact. Um, and then Justice for Migrant Women and Alianza Nacional de Campesinas are both organizations that uh, focus on the work of migrant women and farm worker women. But all together, you know, when, if you were to look at all the work I've done, these projects and others, I believe that if we don't tell our stories, that there is grave risk. We've been erased in this society. Our contributions have been undermined, stoled, repurposed, reshaped without us having any uh, ownership or possibility of changing things. And we also know that the consequence of not telling our stories authentically has meant discrimination, harm, violence, like so many things. Like I, I often say the story of Latinx people in our country has been one of the people think of us as takers. They think that we take jobs, we take resources, you know, we take benefits. And the truth is we are givers. You know, we give of ourselves in every way. We contribute to the economy. We contribute to our communities. We, we, we give when we have nothing to give. You know, like we might not have much. We might only have like a few, a few beans in our pot, but we share those beans that we have, you know? And so my father taught me when I was a little girl that we have to tell our truths. We have to tell our stories. And, and, and so for me, that's been so important and, and I've done it across all of my work. And I've just been really fortunate that, um, people have decided to support that work and understand that there is value. Like if we have nothing else, if we have no resources, if we have no big buildings or no big, you know, uh, companies, if we have nothing else, we have our stories and our experiences and no one can take that from us. And, and there is great value in that. And so all these projects taken together, um, they're an attempt to make sure that, one day when we look back on the history of this country, that we will be part of the stories that are remembered and that we will have had something to do with crafting those stories in a way that is both meaningful and accurate, which is something that we have not been afforded for far too long in this country, in my opinion. Thank you. You know, the Culture Change Fund was one of the first supporters of Chi Se Puede and now Poderistas, and we are so proud to have been able to be part of this community and to continue to be part of the community. So it's such an exciting project. And the same thing with the Latinx House, for sure. 
Um, I want to thank you, Monica, for really taking the time and spending this morning, your afternoon, my morning uh, in California with me. And I wanted to make sure that you have an opportunity for those who are listening, you know, how can they connect with your work, with uh, all that you're doing, and how can folks participate in um, justice for, for migrant women? Well, first of all, for everyone who's listening, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, And people get so confused because they say, like, you have, like, all these organizations, and it's true. It it, it can be confusing. So um, you can follow me at Activist Monica Ramirez, and then you can learn about all the different things. But um, I think my main takeaway for folks who are listening is I think the best way that you can support me is really by supporting people where you live support locally, you know, find out who the organizations are on the ground where you are to figure out what is needed where you are, because ultimately what we are trying to do is we are trying to make the biggest change possible wherever possible. And I think starting in our backyards is a great place to start. So start local. Um, And if you want to learn more about our specific work and how to get engaged, uh, you can find out more about Justice for Migrant Women at justice, the number four, women.org and our handle on social media across all of our our platforms. So Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, it's at MujerXRising, M-U-J-E-R-X-S Rising. Um, And you could find out what we're doing. You can, um, you know, figure out how you can support other efforts, other campaigns. We always have campaigns. Um, So you can figure out how to support those campaigns if you go to our website or our social platforms. And, you know, I think we just have to remember that we can all make change. You don't have to be an advocate. You don't have to be an activist. You don't have to work for a nonprofit. We can all make change wherever we are. And I hope that if you haven't started, that you'll get started now. Thank you so much. Gracias. Muy grata por la charla and to be together with you, Monica. Thank you. And thank you for all of your support, Via. Thanks for joining me for this conversation. If you want to learn more about our guests, their work and campaigns, and how to get more engaged, go to medium.com slash and follow us on social media. We would love to hear from you. Kiskadi is executive produced by Bia Vieira, produced by Wanda Costa of Starlet Productions. Original music composed by Maxine Solomon. Original artwork by Yasmin Hernandez, Wanda Costa, and Nicholas Schultz. Graphic illustrations by Kay Dugan Morale of Illustrating Progress. A very special thanks to all of our guests and supporters the Women's Foundation California, the Culture Change Fund, and you.